Well, could you turn in your Bibles, please, with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's the portion that Rebecca read to us just now. Um, turn to 2 Samuel. I'm going to ask you, once you're there, to turn back to 1 Samuel just now, but uh, kind of get yourself in the Samuels, um, and we're going to come and look at this portion of God's Word this morning. Um, so Shane was supposed to uh, continue in his series in 2 Samuel this morning, but he is already away uh, down in KZN for the Baptist Union Assembly, which is commencing tomorrow, and he had to attend some additional meetings leading up to that, and so I'll be filling in for Shane this morning as we continue our series in 2 Samuel. And if you were here the last, uh, last week, you will know that we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 6, and so we should be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7 today which is the wonderful portion in God's Word, which tells us about God's covenant with David. Uh, and Shane was really disappointed that I got to preach the highlight of 2 Samuel instead of him. Um, but when we started the series, I had mentioned to Shane that one of my personal favorite passages in 2 Samuel is chapter 9. And I really wanted to preach on that passage. Um, so we struck a deal um, so today I'm going to do chapter 9, and Shane will resume with chapter 7 in a few weeks' time. Fortunately, uh, chapter 9 is a standalone unit, uh, which we can look at on its own today without affecting the, the flow of the book as we move forward. But for us to really appreciate the events uh, recorded for us in chapter 9, we need to go back in time, about 15 or maybe 20 years to the book of 1 Samuel, uh, to the time when as young men, David and Jonathan had become best friends. We know that King Saul was trying to kill David. Saul knew that his days as king were numbered because he had disobeyed God. God had withdrawn uh, his blessing from Saul. And so Samuel had then anointed David to become Israel's future king. And so Saul was determined to make sure that David would never reach the throne so that his son Jonathan could take over from Saul as king. And so David was set on killing Sorry, Saul was set on, on killing David. But Jonathan, we read in 1 Samuel, he was a God-fearing young man, and he realized that David was indeed God's chosen king, which Israel needed. And so we read back in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3 and 4, uh, that account that Jonathan removed his royal robes, he removed his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt, and he gave them to David as a sign that he had submitted to David as God's chosen king. This was all while Saul was still on the throne. And so as Saul's pursuit of David intensified, let's turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20, and let's read together just a couple of verses which tells us what happened next. 1 Samuel 20 verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I've sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety." May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. 
If I am still alive, meaning when you become king, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So verses 14 to 16 of this portion we've just read is really the key to understanding 2 Samuel chapter 9, because in these verses, David and Jonathan make a covenant David makes a covenant with Jonathan to show him the steadfast love of the Lord. Again in verse 15, to show his steadfast love to Jonathan's family. Now this word in the ESV, steadfast love, is the Hebrew word chesed. We've looked at this before. It means the steadfast, faithful, loving kindness shown between two parties or two people within the bond of a covenant. This is the same word, chesed, which is used most often to speak of God's faithful covenant love towards Israel and towards us as his people. Now the reason that these verses in 1 Samuel 20 are so significant is because what David was covenanting with Jonathan would have been totally unacceptable in the kingdom politics of the day. The normal The acceptable practice of all kings was that when a new king ascended to the throne, the first thing he would do would be to utterly destroy any and all of the descendants of the previous king to prevent any of those offspring from rising up later to make a a claim to the throne. And so as long as there were descendants of the previous king still alive, the present king could never relax. But here in 1 Samuel, verse, uh, chapter 18 and chapter 20, we see that both Jonathan and David, they submit ultimately to a better way. They submit to God's way. Jonathan, who was prince, he was heir, heir to the throne, he relinquishes his human right to the throne, as we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 18. And then David relinquishes his human prerogative as the new anointed king to destroy all the descendants of Saul. Both Jonathan and David honor God by doing things God's way. Now before we come to our passage in 2 Samuel chapter 9, there is one more piece of historical background that we need. So please turn ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Um, You will remember in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that both King Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in battle on the same day. And that opened the way then for David now to become king. And then we read in 2 Samuel chapter 4 verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old. Old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And the nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle on the same day. And when the news gets home to Jonathan's family, 
the nurse or the nanny who was looking after little Mephibosheth, she knows what normally happens next. What happens next is that David would be anointed as king and it would not be long before David's soldiers would arrive at the door of the house to execute the bloodline of Saul and possibly his servants as well. And so in her desire to protect Mephibosheth, she picks him up and she flees for her life, flees for the life of the boy, but in her haste, we are told, she drops him and he becomes crippled in both feet. What a tragic situation. His dad and his grandfather killed in battle on the same day, and now he becomes a paraplegic, effectively sentencing him to death if David ever came looking for him. Right, now we are ready to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9 uh, and to look at, uh, pick up the story as uh, Rebecca read it to us. 2 Samuel chapter 9 verse 1. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, because the, the Hebrew words um, often have a, a range of meanings uh, in different contexts, sometimes we can miss the connection between passages in the Bible if our English translations decide to use a different English word uh, for the same Hebrew word. And I think this is what happens uh, in our text this morning. You see, in our text, David says, is there anyone left that I can show kindness and the word translated kindness here in verse 1 is none other again than the word chesed, the same word that was used in the covenant between David and Jonathan back in chapter 1, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14. When David said, uh, sorry, when Jonathan said, when you become king, do not cut off your chesed, do not cut off your steadfast love from me and my family forever. And now here in, in verse 1 of chapter 9 of, of 2 Samuel, David is now firmly established as king over all of Israel. We'll see in chapter 7 that God establishes an eternal covenant with David. In chapter 8 and chapter 10, which surround this chapter, we see that God grants David great military victories over all his enemies. And so finally it seems that David has arrived. David can now rest in the promises and the purposes of God for him as king. But in verse, nine of, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, David recalls his covenant with Jonathan, a covenant that was made probably about 15 years earlier. And he says, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him chesed, steadfast, loving, kindness, for Jonathan's sake. Now here we learn something wonderful about the biblical nature of covenant. It goes the distance. It never expires. Despite the years that have gone by, despite the circumstances that have changed, Jonathan's not even alive anymore. There is great security in a covenant. And I hope you can see here that the love that David desires to show to the, the offspring of his enemy, Saul, it's got nothing to do with emotions or, or sympathy or benevolence. It has nothing to do with, with warm, fuzzy feelings. 
It's motivated and it's anchored by the promise of the covenant which David made with Jonathan. And so we are told that someone reports to David that there is still one servant of King Saul named Ziba, and he might know whether or not there are any descendants of Saul still left. And so David summons Ziba to him, uh, and we read in verse 3, And the king said to Ziba, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God, the chesed of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now we are meant, I think, to notice a, an incredible contrast here between Ziba, who was a servant of Saul, and Mephibosheth, who was the grandson of King Saul. Ziba, we are told a bit later in verse 10, he was a wealthy, prosperous man. He had 15 sons. He had 20 servants. While Mephibosheth remained a cripple, unable to work, unable to earn a living, not even owning his own property. He's living as a boarder in the home of Machir at Lodabar. No one even knows today where Lodabar is. What a sad state of affairs for Mephibosheth. Well, this was the day that Mephibosheth always feared. Every time he looked down at his crippled feet, he recalled the day when his nanny dropped him as they fled to protect his life because he had a death sentence over him. Every time he remembered about the death of his grandfather and his father, he waited for the soldiers of the new king to come knocking on the door and to announce the day of his execution. He knew on that day he was as good as dead. He could not run. He could not fight for himself. He could not buy himself out of his predicament. There was nothing he could do to change the fact that he was a descendant of Saul and thus an enemy of King David, and he was crippled. And so the fateful day arrived when his identity was exposed by Ziba. And he's summoned before King David, apparently it seems at this point for noble reasons. But in his heart, Mephibosheth must have thought that today was the day of his death. And so as the servants or perhaps the soldiers of King David presented him before uh, David, we read in verse 6 that Mephibosheth fell on his face before the king and paid homage to David. Now let's read on and see this most amazing turn of events in verse 6. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face, paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness, chesed, for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should re show regard for a dead dog such as I? 
Now verse 7 really is the key verse to this whole chapter as David just showers Mephibosheth with the blessings of his covenant with Jonathan. The blessings of this covenant, steadfast, loving kindness. We see that David promises three things to Mephibosheth. Firstly, protection. He says to Mephibosheth, do not fear. Mephibosheth was expecting to hear off with his head. Instead, he hears these words of incredible protection. Do not fear. I will show you chesed. Secondly, we see David provides him with provision. David says, I will restore to you all the land of your father Saul. Not just the land belonging to Jonathan, but all the land belonging to the previous king. This is unheard of. Land in those days equaled wealth. It it equaled provision. And the new king took all the land of the previous king to himself. But here David gives the land of Saul to Mephibosheth. But there's a problem. How would crippled Mephibosheth be able to farm all of that land? Well, David's chesed continues as we read in verse 9 and 10, where David then instructs Ziba, Saul's servant, and says to him in verse 9, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. What an abundant provision. But wait, there's more. Because in the third place, we see that that David promises Mephibosheth position. Not only provision and protection, but position. He says, not only will you be safe, not only will I restore to you all the land of King Saul, not only will I provide you with his servants to work the land for you, but you, Mephibosheth, you will always eat at my table. Now, just in case we miss the significance of what David does here, the text won't let us. Look at the end of verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And again in verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now no matter how much you may think that David was a nice guy, you have to stand back and agree that what David did for Mephibosheth was just totally out of proportion towards Mephibosheth. Even if you felt really sorry for Mephibosheth and you felt that he'd had a raw deal in life, there is no way that what David gives to Mephibosheth could be considered as normal. It was over the top. Remember, the original covenant with Jonathan never had these terms in mind. Jonathan was asking David, please don't kill me and my family. That was the essence of the covenant that he made. When you become king, please don't wipe us out. But what we see here is that the motivation behind David's overwhelming, abundant blessing of Mephibosheth is there in verse 7. I will show you chesed 
for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Every blessing which David showered on Mephibosheth was all for the sake of Jonathan. Because David loved Jonathan as his own soul and covenanted to Jonathan to show him the chesed of the Lord, the loving kindness of God. Now notice how the chapter ends in a rather strange way. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the fourth time in 2 Samuel that we are told that Mephibosheth was a cripple. You see, this was his identity. Mephibosheth even tells us how he viewed himself. Who am I but a dead dog? In verse 8. This was his station in life. He was a member of the lowest ranking group in society. He was a cripple. He was unable to walk, unable to work. He was always dependent on others to carry him where he needed to go. He was always a burden to other people. He saw himself as a dead dog. And yet we are told that because of David's covenant with Jonathan, for the sake of his love for Jonathan, Mephibosheth ate always at the king's table like one of the king's own sons. Now as we stand back and we just consider this seemingly insignificant chapter in the grand storyline of King David, we should ask ourselves, why did God choose to include this account in the history of David? It comes sandwiched between two chapters which outline the great military conquests of David. And if it was not there, you would not even have noticed. It also comes two chapters before the great moral failure of David with Bathsheba, where if you were wanting to elevate uh, David to the top of the nice guy pedestal, you'll soon see that he comes tumbling down. So what is the purpose of this in the storyline of the Bible? What's its significance to you and me today? And I would propose that if we stand back and, and we do a little bit of theological reflection, we will see that this story is not really about making much of David. It's not really about the great blessing that has been showered on Mephibosheth. It's really a picture. It's a picture in a human story of the great love of God for his son Jesus and his covenant blessings which are showered on all of us who believe in Jesus. See, this story is actually a wonderful illustration of the triumph of the gospel, that undeserving sinners are not treated as we deserve, but because of God's love for Jesus, we who are dead dogs, we who are spiritually crippled, we are enemies of God, we are showered with this abundance of protection and provision and position for the sake of another, for the sake of God's love for Jesus. Theologians speak about a covenant of redemption which is that covenant which God the Father made with God the Son before the foundations of the world. A covenant to redeem a people for God. 
And although we don't find that phrase covenant of redemption in scripture, the whole message of the Bible echoes the fact that God is committed to save a people for himself by sending Jesus Christ into the world. One of the clearest passages which which shows how the triune God covenanted together before the foundation of the world to save sinners is found in Ephesians chapter one. Let me just read a couple of verses for you there. Ephesians one verse three and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got God, we've got Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be blameless and holy before him. In love he predestined us for adoption. There's the position to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In the one whom he loves in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." I hope you're starting to see how the story with David and Mephibosheth helps you and I to better understand the gospel. You see, when this poor crippled man came hobbling down the, the red carpet towards King David, perhaps dragging his lame legs behind him, do you know what David saw? He did not see Mephibosheth. He did not see a cripple whom he felt sorry for. He did not see an enemy who deserved to die. No, when David looked at Mephibosheth, he saw Jonathan. And because of his great love for Jonathan and his covenant with Jonathan, David loved Mephibosheth. He restored Mephibosheth. He blessed Mephibosheth with great wealth and fellowship to sit at his table always. And that is exactly what happens when you and I come to Christ, when we come to God through faith in Jesus. When we place our trust in Jesus, we literally, the Bible says, become united to Christ. We are in Christ, is the language that Scripture uses. And so when you and I stand before the righteous king, the holy judge of the universe on that day, as poor, spiritual, crippled beggars who were born into the family of the devil and belong to his kingdom, what does God see as he looks at us? Does he see you? Does he see me? Does he see all our sinfulness? Does he see our desperate state of guilt? Does he see a spiritual dead dog? No, he sees Jesus. And because of God's great love for Jesus and his covenant of redemption with Jesus, when he looks at us who are in Christ, he sees his beloved son 
he welcomes us in. And he says, do not fear. I will show great kindness to you for the sake of Jesus. I will give to you all the inheritance of my son Jesus, and you will live in my presence as sons and daughters forever, and you will always eat at my table. As the king of Israel, David, went out and he waged war against all his enemies, and God destroyed them before David. And the Bible tells us that God will one day come to destroy all his enemies. But all those who are in Christ, all those who are born again and have been adopted into his family, we will be saved, we will be loved, we will be restored and blessed for all eternity. Not because of anything we have done, but because of God's love for Jesus. God's covenant with Jesus. This Old Testament story in 2 Samuel 9 is a wonderful picture of the doctrine of justification, which Paul explains in Romans 5. And I'm going to just close by reading a couple verses from Romans 5. And I pray that as I do that, the story of David and Mephibosheth will connect your heart to the gospel. Romans 5, verse 1 and 2, and then 6 to 10. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Verse six, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse eight, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We are God's Mephibosheths. We are the ones whom he protects and provides for and positions as sons to sit at his table forever. All because of another, because of Jesus. May the triumph of the gospel draw us afresh to love and worship God for his great chesed, his great grace and loving kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do, we do just marvel at your grace to us this morning. Forgive us, Lord, as we come to a story like this that we want to read ourselves into the hero of the story. We want to think, well, I would be just like David. No, Lord, help us to see who we really are in this story, that we are Mephibosheth, that we are spiritually crippled beggars who belong to the kingdom of darkness. But it was while we were still sinners, while we were still your enemies, that you died for us. So we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for that covenant of redemption that has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with our moral achievements in this world, but it has everything to do with your desire 
to show your loving kindness to your son by giving him a people, a people who we will see in Revelation in the weeks to come will be that great bride that will be united to Jesus at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Lord, this is all your doing. You deserve all the glory. Won't you humble us again this morning and cause us to just overflow in our hearts with love and gratitude to you, we pray. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.